You know, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and then in a few moments we'll flip over to the book of Ezekiel. And so if you want to go ahead and find that too, it may be a little more tricky for you to find, but uh, it'll be Ezekiel 36 if you want to put a finger over there, okay? Uh, This is, like I said, a little bit unusual because, to be honest with you, here at, at Fellowship, we typically go through a book of the Bible and go verse by verse, line by line through the text. It's called expository preaching, and we want to expose the meaning of the text and then sort of glean the the truth of Scripture in that way. But uh, I've just seen fit that for the next eight weeks, and this is week four, we're going to talk about some core commitments of of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be his church. And what what I mean by that is not necessarily what are the most important doctrines, but rather the fact that these are the most important things that we as believers must be committed to. In other words, there's a whole lot more to being a Christian than these eight things that we're going to talk about, but there certainly is not less. And so we're going to talk about these core commitments, and the, the fourth one today is, uh, is our baptism. We've already talked about our hope, which is the gospel, our mission, which was the great commission, and then we've talked about uh, in, in week three, prayer, and I, I think that that was an enriching time as well. So uh, today we're going to move on to baptism. And by the way, if you've missed any of these weeks, they're on Spotify and on the podcast app if you have a an iPhone, you can do it that way if you need to go catch up. All of our sermons are on there anyway, so you can check those out that way. So Acts chapter 2, we'll get there and read there in just a moment. Before we do, <clears throat> there's a guy named David Platt that you guys may know who that is. He's a pastor, theologian, he's an author. Uh, he's the former president of the International Mission Board, the IMB. David Platt is, is a great mind. He's, he's brilliant, um, but he's also radically minded when it comes to missions. He tells a story of a time that he was teaching on baptism in an underground house church in a Southeast, uh, a Southeast Asian country. For citizens of that country, being baptized could literally cost them their lives. And when he was teaching on baptism in this underground house church, this little room, there were two brothers that pursued baptism. One was a young adult, the other one was a teenager, and they came to the leadership of the church desiring to be baptized. And so they were brought to the church leaders, each one of them, and they were asked a question point blank. Are you willing to be baptized knowing that it may cost you your life? The older brother, who's a young adult, he simply said, I've already sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. I'm ready to be baptized. The other brother, older teenager, was asked the same question, are you willing to be baptized knowing that it may cost you your life? And he said, Jesus is my Lord. Whatever he says do, I must do. There's a noticeable disconnect between that mindset, which closely resembles the New Testament church, and the mindset of believers in our context, thousands of miles away, where we can sit in comfy chairs in big open rooms publicly and somehow say, it's just a symbol. And somehow say, it's not like it saves you. My personality isn't ready for that. I don't think baptism is for me. Those two things are very different, aren't they? You see, Scripture has absolutely no comprehension for that kind of thinking. What kind of follower of Jesus can say to Jesus, I want to have what you have to offer, but I'm not willing to be identified with you. You know what Jesus said to people with that mindset? Depart from me, I never knew you. Those that were not willing to do the will of the Christ. And so today, some of you guys, on this subject matter, just being honest, and listen, we're going to get to the end of this thing, and I think there's going to be a lot of encouragement and uplifting and certainly a challenge of obedience, but there's a couple of camps that I think are in the room today, maybe three, but I'm going to talk about two specifically, and one of those camps is that some of you today on this subject matter are walking out of step with what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and very clearly, you need to make that right. Others of you, perhaps, have been baptized but may have a shallow understanding of baptism, perhaps from lack of teaching or study or simply from buying the cultural myth that baptism just isn't that big of a deal or it's just a post-salvation ritual. It's just what you do. We just can't accept that. The goal today is twofold. is in studying baptism to enrich your mind and as a result, enrich your heart. Because I think if we understand the picture of baptism that Jesus has given us, I do think it will cause us to fall madly in love with the Father who gave it. Enrich our minds and enrich our hearts. 
This passage in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to read in just a second, the context, I'm not going to read all of Acts chapter 2, but it really, you can't separate it from the whole, and that is that Pentecost has happened. If you don't know what that is, it's where Pentecostals get their name, the filling of the Spirit. And so Pentecost is a moment where the Holy Spirit rushed into a room where Jesus' disciples were, and it was an, an incredible occasion. They started uh, obviously becoming very energized, but they also did something very unusual, and that's they started speaking in tongues. Now, they did not start going like this. That's not what it meant when they said they spoke in tongues. You want to tell you what it meant? It meant that they started speaking in languages. They started speaking in languages that common fishermen and tax collectors in the Roman Empire should not know these languages. They weren't studied of these languages, and yet onlookers saw them speaking languages that they had no business knowing, and they said, are these guys drunk? So they asked, Acts chapter 2, are you, are you guys drunk? And somebody said, they're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m., third hour. It's, not, it's only 9 a.m., they, they can't be drunk. Then what's happening? Peter then goes and preaches one of the most amazing sermons that you will read in your Bibles in Acts chapter 2. And in that sermon, he talks about David and Abraham, and he talks, he really brings to, again, a Jewish audience some context as to what just happened with all these crazy tongues and this rushing of God's Spirit. He contextualizes it and says, you see, you guys, the Jews, y'all just killed and buried the Christ, but he didn't stay dead, and this tongues thing was his Spirit invading his people and igniting his movement. It's the gist of Peter's sermon. Now listen, he preaches that sermon, which is a convicting sermon because he says, you killed the Christ, and yet he ain't dead. And so we pick up in verse 36 of chapter 2, and the response is very clear. Look at chapter 2, verse 36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <clears throat> There's the hammer. 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What's the invitation? Right? 38. Peter said to them, Repent, meaning turn from your sin, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Confident claim because they just received it, right? <clears throat> For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, 40. And with many other words, meaning the sermon went more and more and more, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, calling them to response, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, okay, received by faith, received his word, were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls <laughs> massive what a moment what a moment we, we breeze over it. it takes me a minute to read that but man can you imagine you see as best as we possibly can the present day 21st century church seeks to be informed and instructed by god's words instructions to the early church in other words if we want to be a biblical church, we have to be a biblical church, right? Take our instructions from here. And the reason I say that is that baptism wasn't secondary for the early church. It was essential. It wasn't secondary. It was essential. It wasn't optional. It wasn't embarrassing. It wasn't a burden. It was a joyous necessity. That doesn't mean it saved them, but to them it was a joyous, non-negotiable necessity. It was a physical mark they were excited to undergo of a spiritual belonging. And this is what I want you to walk away with today. Got a lot of things we're going to put on the screen. And the first thing is that I want to look at what we are doing when we baptize. Okay? What are we doing when we baptize? We're doing two things. Number one, we're following Jesus' example. We're following Jesus' example, meaning that not just his instruction, but his example. Jesus was baptized, right? He identified with the sins of the world. It was the inauguration of his ministry. And Jesus went into the baptismal waters. And you may be thinking, hold on a second, isn't baptism for people that need to be saved? Why would Jesus be baptized? He did it so that we would see our Lord and say, we need to follow his example. Jesus wasn't a sinner and that he would need to repent. And yet he said, I'm going to go into these waters so that you will know that it's necessary for you. Matthew 3, 13 through 16 was Jesus' baptism. And it says this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. That's John the Baptist.
John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? That makes sense. You're the Christ. Why am I baptizing you? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The next part says that the Father chanted from the skies, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was an indication of a spiritual need. And what do you think that need was? It's water. The need was washing, right? Baptism was a baptism of repentance. You have a sin problem. And John came saying, everybody, turn from your sin. You need to be cleansed of it. Washed away your sin, like we just sang just a moment ago. But listen, if this is a baptism of washing that John brings, why did Jesus need it? Well, the short answer is he didn't. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He never sinned, but still wanted to identify with us so that one day we could identify with him. He would be buried in a grave, not of water, but of stone, and he would come out that all may be washed and raised, and he foreshadowed it in his baptism. He didn't have sin, but he would take on the sin of others, right? So that's what we are doing. We're following Jesus's example. The second thing, though, is that we are obeying Jesus's command. <clears throat> We're obeying Jesus's command. We can break this into two parts, and that's how and who. So how is it to be done, and who is it to be done for? That's ending a sentence in a preposition, and that's a big no-no, but I'm going to do it anyway, and we can just move on from it, okay? Who's it for, and how is it supposed to be done? Well, first of all, the how. Very simply, how is it supposed to be done according to Scripture? Baptism is supposed to be done according to Scripture. And listen, you guys know this as well as I do. There's a lot of disagreement about what that right there means, right? You got people that say, no, it needs to be done this way, at this time, and this way, at this time. The short answer, though, is simply, the Bible has one way, and we want to get that way right, as best as we possibly can, as clear as it possibly may be. And I'm going to suggest to you, as Baptists, in a Baptist church, that immersion is the scriptural means of baptism being dunked under the water i'm going to make an argument for that if you may come from a different background you may come from a methodist church or a presbyterian church i'm just going to quickly make an argument for why this is a scriptural baptism okay first of all every time you see the word for baptism which the bible wasn't written in english it was written in greek right the new testament was every time you see the new testament word for baptism it's the word baptizo which literally means to dip or to immerse when i'm doing baptismal counseling i always say this is you don't you don't uh, you don't sprinkle your Oreos, you baptize them, right? It means that you dip them underneath. And that's what the word here in the New Testament for baptize is to dip underneath. That's why John's name was John the Baptist. Literally meaning, not, not John the Baptist, but John the Baptizer, John the Dipper. And it doesn't mean that he's carrying a can of skull around or Copenhagen. It means that he was a dunker under the water, okay? That's what his MO was. He was John the Dipper, the Baptizer. In fact, there's some more evidence for this. In Matthew 3, 16, which we just got done reading, there's a verse in there, you may have missed it, it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. You hear the language there, right? He came up out of the water. It doesn't mean that he came up away from the cup that was poured over his face. He was literally raised out of the water. Another example, in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, when Philip has seen the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. It says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. It wasn't a water fountain. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both, listen, went down into, you hear the language there, went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, <clears throat> and he baptized him. They, he dipped him. He dunked him. And when they came up out of the water, you hear the language, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, went on his way rejoicing. Now, clear evidence there that baptism was by dunking. It was by dipping. But I'm going to give you one more even stronger example than those. And that is that baptism by dunking, by burying under the water, is a perfect picture of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just having water splash against your face. The gospel is you have been buried with Christ and raised to walk, right? You've been buried and put into the grave, the former self, crucified with Christ, dead, and then raised out. That sounds like 
burial and resurrection. This is a perfect picture of that. And so more than all the other things is that this is clearly an image of the new life that we have in the name of Jesus. It's a gospel image. And simply, there is not one example in the New Testament of any believer being baptized by any other method than immersion. And I think that that's a good argument for that being how. So who? Who is it for? Well, very simply put, I would argue that it is for believers. And I will also say it's for all believers, not for some, but all believers. It's obedience. And I'm going to be clear here. I say it's for all believers, meaning those that have already been rescued from their sin and delivered into the kingdom of God. Those that are already being, have already been saved. It is not what saves. The Bible is clear that faith is what saves, belief in, in the Christ Jesus. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No mention of, of baptism as the means to which that's accomplished. A couple of real life examples we could talk about there. The thief on the cross is told, Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't take him off the cross and we got to find some water, Right? He was counted as righteous. In that moment, he was going to spend glory with Jesus, even though he never was baptized. And I would say the same thing about you may have a loved one that's on their deathbed that makes a profession of faith and praise God for that. Oh, shoot, we couldn't baptize them. They're stuck in the hospital. I think that God honors that, right? That God honors that. They don't have to find a body of water and throw, the, throw them in there before they can be counted. It's very clear that the scriptures are, are obvious and evident that faith in the Christ is the means through which we may be saved. So it's not what saves. However, it's very important. It's one of the very first steps of obedience for, I'm going to say it again, all believers. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19, that said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that Pentecost sermon that we mentioned just a moment ago in Acts chapter 2, 36 through 38, it said, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, meaning they were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. How many of them? Every one of them. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then in verse 41 of that same chapter that we just read a moment ago, those who received his word, received by faith, were baptized. Doesn't say some of them were. They were baptized and added that number 3,000 souls. And maybe we could summarize it and say it this way before we move on to the next thing. The baptism is a public proclamation that I identify with Jesus, his cause, and his mission. It's a public proclamation. Hear the word public there. That's why we like to do it in the church, right? It's a public proclamation to your brothers and sisters. I belong to Jesus, to his cause, and to his mission. Now, that's what we are doing. But I want to spend more time talking about why we are doing it why we are doing it. Baptism isn't just a ritual that we perform. It's a demonstration of the gospel at work that we admire and embrace. And the why we are doing it is that it is a baptism portrait. It's a portrait, meaning that it is a picture of something. It's not the real thing. If I were to give you a pen and paper and say, I want you to draw a portrait of this ugly mug, you know what? It wouldn't be the actual ugly mug on your piece of paper. It would be a picture of it. And maybe you could make it look better than it actually is. Tip your cap to you. How about that? But listen, a picture of something, a painting of something. If you have an artist go and paint the Eiffel Tower, have they recreated the Eiffel Tower? No, they haven't. They've simply given you a portrait of the real thing, right? This is what baptism is. It is a picture of a real, amazing thing. Go ahead and flip over to Ezekiel 36, and we'll read that in just a moment. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36. This is a picture of the gospel that baptism is. Thursday, uh, my wife and I, Brooke, uh, we have a newborn baby too, so we didn't get to do anything fun on this day, but it was our 10th anniversary. We got to go out to eat, and that's pretty fun, but we didn't get to go all do the amazing fun plans that we had about a year ago. Well, it, too bad. Maybe number 11, who knows. But uh, we celebrated our 10th anniversary on Thursday, and I remember, and some of you guys have been married for 40, 50 years, they could probably say the same thing. I remember the wedding day like it was yesterday, and yet I don't remember anything about it. Isn't that crazy? But I remember that day like it was yesterday, and certain things, I mean, I can still feel the heat and the beads of sweat running down my face in the August 4th, 100-something degree barn that we were married in, right? I mean, it was smoldering, people out there fanning. I remember that day like it was yesterday. And when I think about weddings in the gospel, you see a lot of parallels there. But listen, please hear this. 
when I think about our wedding day back 10 years ago, maybe yours 20, 30 years ago, or maybe just a year ago or six months ago, or it's about to happen, who knows? But I'm going to say something. In a wedding ceremony, exchanging the rings doesn't make you married, okay? Exchanging the rings doesn't make you married. What makes you married? Vows and entering into a one flesh covenant under God in a union made by God. That's what makes you married. These rings are wonderful, but what makes us married is saying, I want to be your husband, I want to be your wife, till death do us part, sickness, health, plenty want, under God, God bring us together, let no man separate what you have brought together. That's what makes one married, right? Vows and a God that is brought together, a one flesh union. And yet, we exchange rings. Why? Because they're a picture. They're a portrait. A portrait of the covenant. In other words, a tangible marker of an intangible covenant, right? A tangible marker of an intangible covenant. Rings are a picture of marriage that we wear on our fingers. In fact, if you refuse the wedding ring, your spouse will likely object to that. Why? Because you need to have a mark. You need to have something that says, I belong to you. You belong to someone. Hey, guess what? Bear the mark. Now, baptism is not the marriage of a believer to the bridegroom Christ. Baptism is not the marriage of believer to Jesus. But it is a perfect picture of that marriage, that salvation. It is a tangible mark of an intangible gospel. It's a mark, baptism is, that you belong to someone. The rings matter, don't they? Baptism matters. That marriage that we see in the Gospels was accomplished 500 years after Ezekiel wrote this prophetic note. But it is foreshadowed in Ezekiel. He prophesied to a community forced from its home. They were into exile, and yet while they were forced from their home into exile, they weren't the victims. They were forced to their homes as exiles, but they weren't the victims. They were the perpetrators. They were the suspects. You see, they had violently gone against God and against God's will. They profaned his name. They had taken up other gods. And so God said, before they even did that, if you go to other gods, you will be punished. There will be judgment, and that judgment came in the form of exile. They were carried off to another region, an empire called Assyria and Babylon. Judgment. And so they longed for salvation. And it's in that time that Ezekiel pins these words. Ezekiel does a couple things. He identifies their error, their deservedness of exile, but also he identifies their hope. And we're going to talk about both here in our passage. <clears throat> Look at verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> I told you guys to turn there, and I forgot to get there myself. Hold on. Ezekiel 36, <clears throat> 22 and 23 says, Therefore... Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. He's talking about salvation. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. He talks a lot. He uses the word profaned there three times. It means that they've taken his name and they've dragged it through the mud. In fact, it's the opposite of what we talked about last week in the Lord's Prayer, where we said, Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Set apart be your name. May it be recognized as holy. God's people had history with that, of not doing that. They've been profaners. The opposite of hallowed be your name is profaned be your name. And they had done the latter. <clears throat> Why would God then now act and save Israel from exile? Did you read? I mean, you saw it in verses 22 and 23, right? Was it his mercy? Was it his love? Was it his grace? Maybe we could say yes to all of those, but that's not the reason that God gives here. The reason that God gives here is he says, to vindicate my great name, to vindicate my holiness, to make a statement to the world about what kind of God you guys disowned. Look at verse 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. Restore you, save you. He says he's going to give them physical salvation. Rescue physically, again, in the context from Assyria and Babylon. Now listen, this is important. Israel was God's possession. God made no uh, confusion about that. Israel was God's 
possession. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he says, you're mine. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, not profane, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the important doctrine here is that God is possessive about those that are his. And the function of those that are his are to talk about how great he is. The salvation that would happen in Ezekiel was God reclaiming what is his. It's God, in other words, saying, I'm going to get back what is mine because that says something about who I am. And you guys know this to be true if you've seen the movie Taken. You ever seen the movie Taken starring Liam Neeson? By show of hands. Anybody seen that movie? That was a pretty popular movie for a little while. And then they made Taken 2 and then like Taken 3 and I was like, come on, girl. You know what I mean? Like, take, take a hint here. You, you are putting yourself in some situations. Anyway, in Taken, the movie Taken, it's starring a guy named Liam Neeson, and his daughter goes, for, I can't remember why, but she goes to Paris, and she gets kidnapped, kidnapped by some bad guys. I don't know if they're from, like, Albania or something like that. And they, get, they kidnap her, and I think they're going to sell her into some sort of a trafficking uh, situation. And so uh, Liam Neeson, as she's getting taken, and she's on the phone with him, like, telling him about what's happening because she's under a bed, and she gets snatched away, and then the bad guy picks up the phone, and Liam Neeson knows he picks up the phone and he says I got bad news for you buddy I'm gonna come take care of you right he says uh what does he say he says I will find you and I will kill you that's what he says but he also says something else and that's the part that I wanted to quote he says he says I have a particular and this is such a funny quote really to me he says I have a particular set of skills that makes me a nightmare for people like you next time your co-worker aggravates you just say that (laughs) that'll really rattle them I've got a particular set of skills that makes me a nightmare for people like you. That's what he says in the movie. What a horrible thing to say. I mean, is is there anything more chilling? And let's just say that uh, he finds them and uses them. He uses those skills. Uh, And that's kind of the whole (laughs) two hours, right? He finds them and he uses those particular set of skills. Now, in the movie, Liam Neeson's character takes down the bad guys because he is possessive about that which is his. He's possessive about his daughter that belongs to him. That's who he is. The whole reason all the movie happens is because he is proving who he is. His character. I'm the kind of guy that's going to go take care of business, is what he's saying. And you walk away talking about what he did and what he is, who he is. You see, God has promised to never leave nor forsake his children. He's a faithful God on top of that, and he's a loving God on top of that. It's who he is. You see, salvation would come for exiled Israel, not because they deserve it, but because he redeems that which he calls his own. That's who he is. And that didn't just happen for Old Testament Israel. It happened for the New Testament church. Calvary was the greatest evidence that our God seeks and saves the lost, that he sets the captive free, and that he brings near those who are far off. Praise God. So now, with that background in Ezekiel, I want to quickly explain with verses 25 being one, 25 being, uh, 26 being another, and then 27 being the third. I want to explain now why baptism is a perfect picture of all that. The first reason is because it's a picture of washing. It's a portrait of washing. You may have noticed this, but the tone of Ezekiel's passage here is future tense. God's saying, I will do this. I will, I will, I will. It's going to happen in the future. And verse 25 starts out that way. I will do something in the future. Look at verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Think of a shower, okay? I will spray water on you, this nation. I'm going to spray water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. That's what a shower does. And from all your idols, he says, I will cleanse you. Now, important background is that the idolatry of Israel made them unclean before a holy God. A big Old Testament theme is to be unclean was a physical description of an inward spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality was unclean people could not approach a clean God. Say it another way. Unholy people cannot approach a holy God. It cannot be done. And so when God makes a big deal about the uncleanness of his people, he says, you can't be mine if you stand stained. So God resolves that if Israel 
are to belong to him, they must be made clean as he is, holy as I am holy, is the way that God phrases it in a couple of instances. You see, under the law, those deemed unclean were to go through bathing rituals prescribed by God in Leviticus. Only temporary fixes, though, shadows of a thing that was to come. But if idolatrous Israel were to be restored to fellowship with God, God would have to personally, because they couldn't do it, he would have to personally wash away their sins. What did we just sing about? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. God was going to have to do an amazing work to wash away sin. He says to put clean water on you. And the same is true of us, church. If we are to be united with God, to dwell with God in heaven, confidently say, I'm going to heaven one day. If we can confidently say that, our sin must first be dealt with. You and an exilic Israelite have a lot in common. And that is that entering into this world, you have a barrier between you and a holy God. You and I, we have a barrier between us and a holy God. And the barrier is called sin. The wages of that sin is death, separation from that holy God. And I think one of the reasons that the weight and the power of the gospel is lost on Bible Belt culture, resulting in lukewarm Christians, is that we have too high a view of our goodness and thus too low a view of God's grace. The gospel would be far more amazing to you if you really understood how much you did not deserve it. Instead, we play the comparison game and say, I'm not that bad. It's not like I did this. And you look at a a horrible event like terrorism and say that's the worst of the worst and in some way you're right but I'm going to suggest to you there is nothing about Osama bin Laden that separated him from God any more than you when you enter into this world now I realize how outrageous that sounds but we're informed by a culture that makes that sound outrageous If we are informed by Scripture, we understand the absolute necessity of that understanding is that we have profaned God. We are cosmic criminals against a holy God, and only by an amazing washing can we approach the throne of grace. And only through an understanding of our lack of goodness can we really have a great appreciation for that grace. That's why when Jesus was preaching and teaching, and the Pharisees were standing there in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, And they're like, hey, what's the big deal? We do this and we do that. And Jesus comes and says, you guys don't understand me. You're not receiving me, you Pharisees. And here's why. He says, Mark chapter 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You cannot walk with Jesus apart from first acknowledging that you're unworthy to stand with him. Before God could give you a new heart, He had to wash away that which prevented you from approaching him. Sin. Now, what is baptism? You know, we baptize with water. (laughs) We don't baptize with Gatorade. We don't baptize with Polynesian sauce, although, hear me out. Maybe in my free time, who knows? But listen, (laughs) we baptize with water, and there's a reason for that. Because water cleans, right? It, It washes. We don't baptize with dirty water. This is clean water. It's, it's fresh water. And the reason we baptize with water is because we're signifying something. And that is that in these baptismal waters, now the baptismal waters are not what's doing the washing. We don't dump some soap in there and make sure we get somebody nice and clean. No, the washing has already occurred, has it not? Praise God. The washing has occurred. But this is a portrait. This is a picture of the real thing. And there's a reason we use water is because we're acknowledging that apart from the grace of God, there is no way that we can enter the presence of God. But we've been washed. And that should be a catalyst of our worship. The thing about us having too high a view of our goodness, too low a view of God's grace, when we see the necessity of washing, it should humble us. It should be a catalyst of our worship. The recognition, we have been washed, because we had to be. It's a celebration here we got. 
Well, we don't just have a sin problem because of sin. We have a dying problem. We need a new heart. And that's the second thing we see in this next verse in Ezekiel, is that this is a, a portrait not just of washing, but of rebirthing, of being born again. Right? And that's the second thing that we see here. <coughs> You're going to see like uh, right here a negative and positive contrast. We need to take this away and give this in verse 26. It says, <coughs> and I will give you, here's positive, I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I'll put within you, and I will remove, take away the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Stone is lifeless. I've never seen a stone come to life except on frozen, and that's not real life, right? Stones are inanimate objects. They have no life, and so if you have a heart that is made of stone when you come into this world, guess what? You're dead. You have no life. So what God is saying is there's going to come a day, Ezekiel, come a day when I replace the dead heart, I'm going to give you a live one. I'm going to give you a new heart. Isn't that the story of salvation? We have a God of justice. Sin has to be punished. We were unclean, unable to be with God. In love, God sought to wash us clean. And not just wash away our sin, but provide the sacrifice who would accomplish it. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says it. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Listen, even when we were dead, stone heart, dead in our trespasses, made us alive. A new heart. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Listen, and if you believe that Jesus has died for your sin, if you've confessed with your mouth that you believe that he's Lord, turn away from your sin, God will now regenerate your heart and make you new and cause you to be, as we like to say, born again. Because you've got to have a new heart. Not just be washed. You've got to be made new. That's why we, what's the song that says, Be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure is that we must be washed, we must also be saved. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the really smart guy Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, approaches the member of the Sanhedrin, he says, what must one do to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, be born again. And he's like, that don't make any sense. He's like, I know, we will one day soon though. Gotta be born again. No longer a dead heart and a live heart. No longer a lost and dull heart, now a tender and living heart. And now back to baptism. In baptism, we don't just see that water washes, but like I mentioned earlier, this is a symbol or a sign of burial. You know, I always say this when we're doing some baptismal counseling, talking about what that means and what that looks like. I say, what would happen? Imagine me saying this to a six-year-old or a 60-year-old. Well, what would happen if I were to take you and dip you under the water and just leave you there? Now, what do you think they would think about that? I was already nervous. Now you're kind of freaking me out. What happens if you leave somebody under the water? They die. They were die. Then that's never going to happen, okay? It's not going to happen. But it's a metaphor that I want you to understand. If you leave somebody under these baptismal waters, they will die. You know why? Because we cannot live underwater with our natural ability to breathe only oxygen and air, right? This water, in other words, symbolizes death. It symbolizes death. It is a grave, right? If you were to go be buried out in the cemetery alive, you would die. Because that is a place for death and decay. So are these waters. The reason we baptize in this way and go under the waters is because we are signifying this person has been dead, and yet now, as we bring them out, we're saying, they're alive again. God has taken the dead heart and replaced it and given them a new life. No longer are they dead in their trespasses and sins, made alive together with God. It's not just being washed, it's being buried and being resurrected. That's why it says on the shirts, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. It's a signified resurrection. That's why in Romans 6, 4, which is where the t-shirt thing came from, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. New life. That tub is a grave, but baptized bodies don't and if you're in Christ Jesus, death is only a doorway into new life. And baptism is a portrait of that. We, we feel in some enriching? Maybe a little bit. The third thing. It's a, it's a sign. It's a portrait of washing. It's a sign or a portrait of <clears throat> new life, rebirthing. But it's also a portrait of empowering. It's a portrait of empowering. 
In verse 27, he goes on. Now, again, he said, I'm going to do something one day to wash you. I'm going to do something one day to make you alive again, give you a new heart, replace the old dead heart. And then finally, he says, I'm going to do something to empower you. Look at verse 27. He says, and I will, future tense, I'm going to do something. He says, I will put my God's spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the first thing that happens is, I'm going to put my spirit within you. Now, the ramifications, the consequences of that is that it's going to change your life. But first, after you've been washed, you've been made new, you will be given something that caused you to be living as new. This promise from God foreshadows the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the life of followers of Jesus. And we are recipients of this promise through faith in Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says your body is a temple. He didn't say that to keep you from getting tattoos. He told you that so that you'd know that your body houses the Spirit of God if you're in Christ. He says, cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. Why does God give him, why does God give the Spirit? To change your life that you live a life that honors him. And that seems like legalism. Oh, he gives me a spirit so that I'll just become a rule follower and then I'll just check all the boxes. That's not what he's saying. What was the sin of Israel, the first sin? What rule had they broken? You will have no other gods before me. Guys, that is a relational rule. You can call it a rule, a regulation, a statute, all you want. It is a relational regulation. And that is simply saying it's not about breaking the law. It's about offending and transgressing a holy God. I'm going to give you my spirit so that you got a fighting chance of not offending the holy God, but rather obeying him and walking in godliness. God wants to be the center of your life. He wants you to live a life of newness, not to just be given new life, but to live life anew. In baptism, we see the portrait of a resurrected person getting out of the watery grave and then taking the first step of new life. And the question is, will it be a a new life of new living, or one where they're constantly revisiting the sin that once buried them. You see what I'm saying? Are we going to come out of the water and really live a new life? Or are we going to revisit the sin that once buried us, enslaved us, ensnared us? In Ezekiel, God promises physical salvation. In Ezra and Nehemiah that we just got done talking about on Wednesday nights, God delivers on that promise. He saves them. But we saw it when we looked through those two books on Wednesday nights. They go back to longing for the gods of the land. They marry into pagan communities. They distrust God for their daily provision, profaning the Sabbath. They're not caring for the poor. And so what we see is a real-life parable, and that is the cycle of sin will forever repeat itself unless God changes the heart and empowers new living. And this is the significance of the gift of God's Spirit, perpetually for all of time. Humanity will always go against the holy God that has called us to a relationship with Him, always. And God knows that. And yet, godliness is impossible with man, but obviously it's possible with God. See, godliness is not possible apart from God, and so, guess what? He gave Himself. I will put my Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, When we baptize, we dunk under the water, we say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. We say we're baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work is essential because we are being baptized into a new way of life. I knew today teaching on this and and there's so much more to say there's so much more and I, I just can't I can't say it all I want to but you got things to do I think so I want to address just a couple things before I let you go before we sing and we're going to have baptism and we're going to finish the rest of our service I want to revisit a couple things <clears throat> for one thing when I talked about baptism by immersion I know that I'm talking to people who have a lots, lots of different stories and different situations and you come from different places. And my plea to you to be baptized by immersion, uh, when I say that, listen, I'm not discounting what may have happened when you were an infant, okay? Please hear that. I'm not discounting what may have happened when you were an infant. 
I know that it's invaluable to you as a moment, sort of a sentimental, valuable time. Your parents wanted to set you apart, and there's value in that. But please hear me say this. It was not your scriptural baptism. It wasn't. And, and I don't mean to be harsh or ugly in saying that. I've explained to you what a scriptural baptism is for believers by immersion. And so if that happened to you before you were a believer or not by immersion, I, I'm just very clear that I just want to outline and just say it wasn't a scriptural baptism. That's all. It doesn't mean that it was pointless. It doesn't mean that it's, it's void of any intimacy for you. It's simply to say you need to be scripturally baptized. And the good news is that we can do that. And I don't mean that to sound harsh. I mean that to sound as a gentle word of correction and just saying, I want you to be obedient. I want you to be obedient to the Lord's instruction here. What's the scriptural baptism? But we can do that. Or maybe you come here and you say, well, I've been baptized three, four, five. I've actually been baptized 13 times, Pastor. Which one took? I have no clue to answer that question, okay, for one thing. But I know that that's some of your story, is that you really have been dunked a lot of times. And let me just say a, a quick address to that, is that you are only baptized, and maybe you just need to change the way that you speak on that. Seriously, it's because you are only baptized one time. Now, you may have been dunked in front of the church seven or eight times, but there was only one time that you were baptized. Because baptism is not just being put under the water. Baptism is the time that you come before God and say, as a believer, I'm asking you to bless this time as the moment, that is the, for the first time as a believer, I'm identifying with Christ in burial and in resurrection. That only happens once. You can go to Jerusalem and do that again, but there's nothing happening that is of, of great spiritual value. Because your baptism happened one time, and it happened wherever that time was, one time. And again, less important than narrowing down a date and saying, well, that one was before and this one was after, is instead saying today that you have been obedient and have been baptized as a believer. All the things that happen other than that, they happen. We, we can't go back and change the past, but praise God that you've been obedient and you've been baptized. And the reason I take this so seriously is that I've seen so much, and I did college ministry for a long time, okay, and youth ministry sometime before that, but mainly in college, it's when people start to seek and wonder and ask questions, and I have seen and heard so much false assurance and unnecessary confusion created by multiple dunkings or by a pastor who rushed someone into it without first being able to even affirm that an individual has faith. That's why, by the way, we do that crazy thing where I ask you to, to write down your story and even read it to your church. It blesses the congregation, but it's also for your sake. It's because there's going to come a day, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now, where you think, was I really? Was I really? And you need to be able to look back and see your thoughts on your page and say, yes, these doubts are not from God. They're from the tempter. It may seem weird that we do that. That's why we do that. It's for your good. That's also why we don't do spontaneous baptism services. I'm not saying they're wicked, that they're evil. I'm saying they're unwise. Because if you don't have an opportunity to sit down with somebody and say, I hear that you want to be baptized. Tell me about that. Tell me about your hope in Jesus. What did Jesus do for you? Tell me about that. Because otherwise, you take a 7 or 8-year-old kid, a 15, 16-year-old kid, a 25-year-old young man or woman who has no clue what they're really trying to do and says, I know I'm supposed to be dunked underwater. Can you do that for me? And if you say, you got it, that'll boost our numbers, you have not done them a service. You've done them harm. And maybe this is a bigger deal to me than it is to you. But as your pastor, this is my responsibility. I want to protect your kids. I want to protect you. And so we take this very seriously. And listen, if you're contemplating this, and this sounds like it's a lot of stress, or it's like a lot of, it's a burden, it's going to be worrisome, it's not. I'm on your team, man. I'm on your team. And I will help you to be able to articulate the hope that you have in Jesus. But I, I will not dunk anybody in these waters until I can confidently say, I believe that you're walking with Jesus, my man. Little guy, I believe that you are really new in Christ. And praise God when that moment happens. But it would be devastating if I were to dunk your kid and him not be a believer. Wouldn't it be devastating? And him grow up and be 20 years old and say, well, a pastor one time told me I was. You will never be entered into glory because I told you you were. Ever. There's just high things at stake here. There's no reason to be scared. But there's a reason to take it seriously. 
We want to affirm the best as we can that the gospel is in someone's heart before they enter into these baptism waters. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. I've said those words so many times I can hardly keep, I can't keep count. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. These waters don't save you, but they are a loud shout that you have been saved. Outward demonstration of an inward proclamation. And that's why, please hear this. That's why, guys, we got to scrap the vocab where we say it's just a symbol. It's just not just a symbol. There is something powerful at work here. You know, Jesus only gave us two pictures of the gospel. This is one of them. We'll talk about the other one next week. It's valuable enough to him. It should be valuable to us. Not to dilute it and water it down, pun intended, sorry. Not to water it down and zap it of its value. It's not just a symbol. It's a great portrait of the gospel. And listen, there is nothing for you to be ashamed of, embarrassed about. If God is revealing to you that you have a step of obedience to take, it is a joyous step of obedience. How great is it that we serve a God that is willing to stir your heart and draw you near to be obedient in baptism. When I was 14 years old, I didn't plan on sharing this, but I'm going to. We got time. When I was 14 years old, I'd been been dunked when I was seven years old. I'd made a profession of faith when I was seven years old, but I did so because I believed that I was supposed to. I did so because I knew that that's what you were supposed to do. My brother did about that time in his life, and I knew it was the coming of age. My dad was a pastor, my mom, pastor's wife. So I knew that that's what I was supposed to do. It wasn't until I was 14 when I realized and God really pressed it on my heart that I was not a Christian. There was no evidence of that. There was no fruit in my life. And the decision I made when I was seven was just uh, some feeling and some pressure that I had that I needed to do something. But by God's grace, he rattled me when I was 14. Now, I'd love to say that right when he rattled me, I made a profession of faith that I was baptized for sure, for real, and nothing's in the same sense. But that's not what happened. For a year and a half, I wrestled with that. I didn't tell anybody that. You know why? Because I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I'm a pastor's kid. I'm supposed to have all this figured out already. What are people going to say? What are my parents going to say? They did this for me. What's that going to look like? That's embarrassing. And those were lies, man. Those were lies from Satan. Because the moment I made that public, I was wrapped in the arms, physical arms, of the brothers and sisters that surrounded me, but I was wrapped in the arms of Jesus. And there was no place I'd rather be. And my parents, they wrapped me in their arms because I was being obedient. If it's time for you to be baptized, there's no embarrassment and there's no shame. There may be some anxiety about that, but I'm telling you, God's stirring your heart because it's what you need to do. And there may be some timidity and there may be some fear. I'm telling you, they are from the evil one. Repent and be baptized. How can you say that Jesus is Lord of your life if you haven't entered into the water that marks you as his own? Walking around married without a wedding ring that younger brother in that country that's hostile to the faith i love what he said when david platt's preaching and they say are you willing that it may cost you your life he says jesus is my lord whatever he says i will do guys can you claim jesus as lord if you've never been baptized i implore you to take that first step today and you may be in here And before you can even consider baptism, you need to first consider if you've ever really been washed, if you've ever really been given a new heart. And that's something that is an inward transformation before it is demonstrated here. And for you today, it may be time to, for the first time, repent and believe in the gospel and give your life to Jesus. Whatever your next step is today, please do not fall captive to the temptation of embarrassment and shame and fear. Break down those walls and let God in to change your life. It's a gift.